Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper, and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that, though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ben Tapper again. I'm here with the Invisible Truths podcast, and I'm excited this week to be interviewing and talking with my friend Maeve O'Byrne. She is a participant in the Joy Revolution class that Brooke and I are also in, and she is a fascinating individual, and so I'm really stoked to have her on this week um, and stoked for you all to get to hear about the work that she's doing and about her journey to this point and how it might intersect with radical self-awareness. So welcome, Maeve. Thanks, Ben. I'm delighted. I'm actually thrilled to be here. This is my first podcast. So Woo! Exactly. Exciting. Exciting. Um, so, Maeve, what do you want to share about yourself with the audience today? Okay, so I have um, a bit of a diverse background. Um, I'm one of six children, the third girl, three boys, three girls. I grew up in the Middle East, but was sent to school, boarding school when I was nine, ten years old. So as my sister says, I was independent at that stage because from then on in, as a family, we, we got together, but we actually never lived together. Um, and so as I sort of delved a bit more into that, um, I got to recognize that my parents who were born and brought up in Ireland were actually, I believe, somewhat shamed by being Irish. And that's particularly due to their um, Ireland being a colony and their own sort of experience there. My grandfather on my father's side actually fought for Irish independence and was imprisoned three times. And so the impact of that on my father was uh, felt by all of us. So anyway, I went to school in Wales and then um, after finishing school in Wales, I was in France and Switzerland for about eight months and then went to Ireland to college. Um, I lived in Ireland just over 10 years and then decided um, to seek some new adventure and and moved to Canada to BC where there apparently wasn't much snow, which was okay with me. I don't do snow and um, worked for uh, over 25 years um, in the nonprofit industry, mainly in healthcare, but I worked in mental health, specifically around schizophrenia and in the arts and really became very interested in how people work and react together, how they interact perhaps is the best way. And for me, the first time I actually encountered racism was in Canada. And so it, that was a very interesting um, part of my journey. And then in about 2011, I decided to do um, a coaching certification and, um, and then immediately after did a master's um, in interdisciplinary, stu- interdisciplinary studies. Um, and uh, that was really focused on human rights, humanitarian work, um, and again, looking at how we, how we work together and how we communicate. So today I'm a coach. Um, I work in the coaching industry, although I also work as a consultant around um, 
human human resources, human rights, looking at bullying and um, harassment. Uh, I work particularly in within the indigenous community here uh, on Vancouver Island, um, and I'm very interested in how we um, how we see bias or how we forget that we all have our own biases. What has your journey navigating that cross-cultural context been like and how has that context or those contexts shaped your personal identity? Mm, great question. Um, well, for years, I really had trouble identifying who I was. I really, um, when we were small living in the Middle East, um, my father didn't actually live with the expat community. He decided that we should just live with the community that was there, the homegrown community, if you like. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, we moved from apartment to apartment, maybe to house, but we were, weren't with the other kids, as it were. Um, so a lot of the people that we interacted with were from, many, many cultures. And in fact, I remember arriving home one time as a small child to find that um, we had a couple of refugees from Gaza living with us. Mm. This was um, during the, the Seven Day War, so I was quite small, and um, they had gone out on their honeymoon and couldn't get back because where they lived had now been... Um, retrieved by the Israelis. So my father just said, oh, well, come and live with us for a while. The kids will be here. We'll just move the roads around. And so for years, and then sort of this Irishness, both my parents spoke fluent Gaelic, um, but wouldn't allow us to speak Gaelic because as far as they were concerned, it was a dead language. Mm. But we had to learn a, another language. That was really important. So we were basically told you learn French. Good language to learn. Um, and so sort of there was this shame about being Irish. There was this sort of identification in the Middle East and living within the Middle East. Uh, and then going to back to not Ireland for boarding school, but Wales, um, where I was probably one of only two or three people whose parents actually lived away from the school. And so I was a minority in all of these places without realizing it. Um, I think I first really, and then my sister was in school in Singapore. She went to United World Colleges and she started dating um, um, an Indian, and Anglo-Indian is how we describe them at that stage. So, mm -hmm. uh, and I can remember having a huge argument with my mother around not having black grandchildren, as she put it. Mm. Wow. And I was, I, I, I remember halfway through thinking, hey, hang on a minute, why am I arguing about this? But right. it was important enough for me at 14 to say, no, this is wrong. Um, and so, you know, as I lived in Ireland and absorbed some of the culture, um, I, I began to identify more and more with my Celtic heritage. And so it was literally probably in my early 20s that I finally said, okay, this is, I am Irish um, and I am Celtic Irish. Um, and then when I came to Canada, that was reinforced 
so I'm Irish Canadian is how I identify myself but I actually don't I identify myself more as a humanist a world member man what a a journey and a set of experiences you know all the all the overlays that you have race culture different countries I mean you just have so many different layers to your cross-cultural identity and your personal identity that is powerfully fascinating. Um, and, and as you were talking, I actually thought of a, a friend of mine whose father was either in the military or a diplomat and, and they grew up or at least spent part of their childhood in Japan. And so there were some very formative years where they, they, they spent, I think, until they were like nine or 11 living in Japan and then they mm -hmm. moved to the United States to Indiana. And it was culture shock for them. You know, even <laughs> though technically home, it was they still, I think, are, there are some ways in which they wrestle and experience that tension every now and then, even though it was 20 or so years ago that they moved back. And so I, I imagine that you and her would have a lot of similarities and a lot of ways that you could relate to each other, which is it's fascinating to me. I have only met two people, and both of them have been within the last four months, that are working with indigenous populations. And so it's not a very common thing. And I'm wondering if you can speak to what drew you in? And specifically, if you can reference kind of what pulled your heart and, and tugged you into that work. Um, I, had, I had been uh, asked by the pediatricians here to pull all, all of the groups and, and uh, individuals working with children and youth together to have a discussion about uh, what could be mm. as opposed to what is currently yeah. and um, you know one of those groups was the local um, one of the local indigenous groups that worked at the that had actually started a friendship house which is a youth center and so they um, they followed up with asking me would I work with them a bit more in developing a health center, that they had a vision for a health center and would I follow up with them. And so I agreed to it. At the same time, there's been a lot of um, news and profile around missing and murdered indigenous women here in Canada. Plus I had started to learn more around um, the residential school system that was here uh, put in place. I don't know if there was a residential school system in the US, but certainly here, right through the 60s, um, indigenous kids were removed from their parents and basically indoctrinated into um, the white man's way of being, losing language, etc. So I had I'd said yes to the lady that, that requested my support. And, you know, as I learned more and more about who um, the local people were, um, the more I felt that there were commonalities, actually. I looked at the commonalities between them and my background and my history, um, the Celtic history. And obviously something clicked because I, I was asked to work more and more within that and particularly with 
new leaders or people who had been identified in the community as leaders, working with children and families, um, who'd overcome themselves, often addiction, um, abuse, etc., and who now were trying to um, support other families. And so I was asked to come in as a performance leadership coach to work with many of them. So um, that's really sort of that little bit of background. You know, the commonalities as I saw them are not just, you know, colonization, but I looked at um, the Celtic jewelry and the indigenous um, art world. And we both use a lot of animals and birds in our, um, our art. Um, so sort of that was one of the commonalities that we had, um, you know, the colonization of Ireland, Ireland is only, I think it's 98, no, 97 years old as an independent nation. So, uh, you know, colonization went on over there, white on white. And so it's the repercussions, you know, my grandfather ended up in the streets. Many of um, indigenous people understand that through alcoholism. And so my, my father became not, quite a ward of the state, but went to the state uh, Christian Brothers School where um, obedience was the thing and you got sort of whipped basically with a cane if you didn't. So there were lots of similarities. And so as we grew and talked about some of those, there was, um, we built trust and working with indigenous or, or other sort of people that are sort of on the sidelines, I think it's really important to acknowledge that right right at the beginning, we have to build the trust between us. We can't actually just go into a relationship. And so I you know that that was one of the things. And I, you know, I look at some of these these women mainly I was working with, but many of these people, and the huge courage they've um, shown in overcoming um, what was in some cases, such a dreadful beginnings and um, how they struggle against the triggers constantly. Childhood trauma or trauma at any point in your life has a way of staying with you. And so I can imagine how much work and how much energy it takes to face that each and every day and to try to break the cycle that can infect entire generations. Yeah. And, and, community or sort of the white community in particular um, still has a long way to go um, to show respect and I think that's one of the key things that we can bring to the table is respect for others cultures um, you know sort of in, and curiosity you know learning about their cultures you know some of the things that that I've learned about is forest bathing and cleansing in the river and uh, sort of learning about um, sort of celebrations and, and mornings as well, which very, are very different and are still challenging for um, the average organization if you have an Indigenous person working with you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's a question that I think is attributed to Ruby Sales, but it, it is literally one of my favorite questions to hold and to ask. Mm -hmm. It is obviously not an easy question, though. So uh, here, here it is. Um, 
I want you to hold the question, where does it hurt? From two different perspectives. Mm -hmm. As you think about the work you've done with indigenous people, especially indigenous women, is there a story or a narrative or an experience that comes to mind that speaks to pain, that speaks to a level of, of brokenness or trauma that leads to, to triumph? So thinking about the question, where does it hurt from the framework of the indigenous peoples you've worked with? Mm -hmm. And then the other framework is what that has shown you about your own pain that you've carried. Is there a way in which the pain of these people has reflected something back to you that you hadn't previously named before? You know, I think of one woman in particular who was, um, I think she's the youngest of 13. You know, her parents were, she, she saw a lot through her parents, but her elder siblings were put into residential school. So she grew up um, in um, poverty uh, with sort of siblings being taken away back. And, and so, you know, I think both, both parents were addicts, um, drugs and alcohol. And she herself at 14 had her first child mm -hmm. and um, went through a, a long, long cycle of addiction and um, her, her journey came to an end, I think with, when she was pregnant with her youngest in her late thirties. And she made the decision to go to recovery. And she went off to university and became a social worker. And at one time, four of her five children were addicts. She now has, so when I first knew her, she had one child who wasn't an addict, the youngest. The second was a user, uh, both of drugs, but mainly alcohol. And her, the other child was um, in recovery, on that road toward recovery. She now has three clean children. Her youngest is a physician and um, her, the, the middle child is a social worker and the other child um, is working to become a counsellor for other addicts, demonstrating that it can be done. Her two oldest, unfortunately, one is fairly clean, but the other one has too, gone too far at this stage. And she stays strong. I'm just, you know, that, that huge pain that she carries and guilt that she carries is the pain um, of what might have been. And my work with her has been twofold. One, to ensure she continues to go to counselling, which is supportive. And then the second is to really look to the future and to the next generation where she can make a huge difference. She's made that shift and she started a new way of being for her family. So I think just to answer that pain, first pain question, the, the guilt and the pain, which resonates, I think, um, really looks to me to where my father was in terms of his journey not should he was i suppose today he would be called a um functioning alcoholic um whereas his brother who didn't drink and we only discovered this 
because the boys parted in their 20s, um, wasn't, didn't drink at all, but literally beat up his kids. So the, the impact of their father in that early life came about differently for the children, whereas my father would run away from, from um, confrontation. So sort of when I, you know, sort of look at this lady's um, journey and the pain, I think how it resonates with me is um, as the daughter of, as my father's daughter, I think, but also in my own journey, you know, I wouldn't, I was never addicted to alcohol, but I could certainly abuse it on occasions. And sort of in my journey, um, I was a single mom to two very, two, two boys and sort of that journey of pain and rejection and the, probably the um, inclination to go and say, oh, I could lose it in a bottle but having the, the um, knowledge that that wasn't the way to go. Uh, sort of that, that touched the pain, the mother in me, I think, um, in ensuring that my children, or I tried not to um, allow the anger in me about the failed marriage, et cetera, play out for them. Yeah, it sounds like your own experience and your awareness of your family's generational cycle of addiction or, or violence and, and the pain that has been passed down allowed you to have some perspective when you could have followed in that cycle, followed in that pattern and then just handed that off to your sons, but they kept you from doing that. Very much so. I, and I think too, part of mine was the fear um, of the unknown, but part of it too was intuitive that, that this this is this could continue a cycle and i look at my siblings and as my eldest son says you all can drink um you know that it's amazing quite frankly that six of us are still alive and we we celebrate it every three or four years when we get together um that one of us didn't sort of fall prey to um drugs alcohol whatever yeah it's so easy to use drugs or alcohol as a, a mechanism to cope with stress or anxiety or, or pain um, and to not even realize that you're abusing them. And, and I don't mean to suggest that every time you use alcohol or drugs as a coping mechanism that you're abusing them, but I, I certainly don't think that's the case because exercise can be used the same way, right? Exactly. Um, I, but I do think that there is a line that's probably different for every person where that coping mechanism becomes a little too regular and you become a little too dependent on that substance. Again, just like you can with alcohol or a relationship oh. or any number of other things. Um, and so if there's someone listening right now that thinks, oh, I wonder if that's me, you know, or I don't think I'm addicted, but could I still be abusing this from time to time? How how can they begin to hold that and understand if what they're doing is healthy or, or unhealthy? Mm. Mm. Um, I think for, from my perspective, it's really watching, watching yourself. Um, I'm, I write a lot and I, um, having a journal really helped me as I looked back and went, Oh, look at that sort of, um, so really sort of keeping an eye on yourself, particularly when you're going through stressful um, moments. And um, that's when I 
found what was stressful to me might have been not been stressful for somebody else but when I found what was stressful to me was yeah it was okay the children have gone to their dad I can sit down and have a bottle of wine not a glass of wine mm. um and just just keeping an eye on it. and if you feel that sort of slide um see what you can what else you can do so for me it was running I would okay if if I go out for a run for two miles, I can have a glass of wine. But by the time I came back, I didn't want a glass of wine. Right. <laughs> so you know, so, so so subconsciously I knew that, but I play that game anyway. So I think really watching yourself as a third person might sort of looking at okay, so how do I deal with the stress? What do I do? What are my go-to mechanisms? Um, are they healthy or not? And if they're not healthy, is there something else that I can do instead of? Yeah, I think all those are, are wonderful things for people to continue to hold. And I, in my own life, I've also found it helpful to have people that act as mirrors for me, people that can reflect myself back to me. That helps me pick up on things, potentially destructive behaviors or negative cycles that I get into quicker than I otherwise normally would. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you have people in your life that have served or currently serve as mirrors for you? Yes. Um, and this is, this is fairly recent. Um, as I said, sort of in my independence at such a young age, I became incredibly private. And even today, people don't know a lot about, you know, if I don't want them to know about my history, I won't let them know. And, you know, I'm happy on my own. Um, I'm, quite happy on my own I recognize I need to have other people in my life and so more recently in the last sort of five ten years I've sort of looked around me and I have a sister who's exactly a year older and she lives part-time in Malaysia and sometimes in Australia where her kids are so she and I become mirrors to each other you know sort of bounce ideas hold each other accountable do that that sort of thing and then I have a, a couple of very good Iraqi friends here. We were next door neighbors when I was growing up, as I say, you know, I was in Kuwait, they were in Iraq, I was, you know, somewhere else, they were in Iraq. So um, they also hold me accountable and, and I can use them to, um, they, they will sort of say to me, you're out to lunch. Don't know if that's a saying you know. It um, is, yeah. <laughs> Um, and then I have a, a, a girlfriend in Ireland that I've known for 40 years, again, who um, is the same. We, we connect via Zoom or email. And uh, she knows me extremely well, knew me and my madness in my early 20s. So, uh, and I know her extremely well. So that's, you know, the, those, those are the people that I you know, sort of use as my circle, my support circle, if you like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that's wonderful. Um, it's interesting that even though you consider yourself a, a private person, you named quite a few people that mm -hmm. act as mirrors to you. And so in some way, it's almost as if subconsciously, you knew those relationships were important, and you've maintained them, you know, over a long course of time to build up a, a good sized group. Yeah, and it took a long time because they were, they've always been there. You know, mm -hmm. my sister and I lost touch in a wee bit at one stage. Um, but 
they've always been there but it was really up to me to sort of open to them i it was a conscious decision because i knew that if i didn't then somehow it wouldn't be good for me i didn't know what would happen but i knew it wouldn't be good for me so for my mental health as well um you know i i, I believe sort of holistically that we have to take you know sort of care of our bodies sort of our physical health our emotional health our spiritual health you know so you know we have to really holistically look at who and what we surround ourselves with yeah that i mean that is so important i I firmly believe that if we don't practice that holistic care, then our relationships will end up failing. Mm -hmm. and on the flip side, when we're practicing that holistic care, there may be some relationships that fail anyway because they just need to, right? <laughs> because they're not healthy. <laughs> oh, very much. I, I'm a great believer in letting go. You know, sort of, um, there have been people in my life that I felt, oh, these are great friends, but as I, sort of really looked at them again looking at them from that sort of third person perspective they were bad for me they were really mm. bad for me and therefore i had to let them go yeah i i'm working on letting go as well from from a different perspective really holding this idea of accepting impermanence mm -hmm. you know we i i go into relationships expecting them to last forever friendships family relationships, even marriage, you know, mm -hmm. and it, it hit me a few months back that maybe I shouldn't expect that. Maybe if I can learn to let go as Buddhism will teach you to be in the moment, right? Um, then I can just appreciate any relationship for what it is in the moment. And if there's a change that comes, um, that I can just accept it. Now that doesn't mean I don't work on the things I need to work on to be a better person or a better friend or a better husband, right? But at some point in time, we all reach that that place in a relationship where it feels like we're ships passing in the night, right? And so we're both doing what we think we're supposed to do. And for some reason, we're just not clicking. And if, if that's the case, maybe it's okay to just accept the impermanence and, and to let it go. And, and so that's something that I'm trying to integrate into my life. And it's kind of scary as someone that craves deep connection, but it also feels really important. Yeah, I think people come into our lives for a reason. And sometimes they're here to stay and other times they're here to stay for a while and then move on and, and that's part of what helps us grow as people you know I, t I tell the story of um, myself my little sister and then myself at 10 and 11 traveling to the Middle East we did this for about two years and then the third year somebody actually met us so we would go we would get a letter with our airline ticket and uh, sort of this is the hotel you're staying in um this is your flight get to the so we would go out catch a bus um the boarding school wasn't much help catch a bus to london often having to change somewhere stay in the hotel um it was all paid for grab a cab to get to the airport in time not just for our flight but to pick up the cigarettes and booze from the duty free and i think we did this two years and you know three times a year or whatever it was. Um, and then we get on the plane and, and fly away. And then the third year, this man met us. And, you know, his, he said, oh, I'm so-and-so, I'm acquainted with your dad and you, I'm gonna, my wife's coming and we're gonna take you out to a movie and um, we could buy you dinner. And we really didn't know what to do with 
you know, was, you know, who were these? You know, why did we need these people? Uh, and yet, it's really interesting. It was the first James Bond movie I'd ever met, which probably was totally inappropriate for an 11-year-old or something. Um, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it stuck in my mind as, you know, sort of she was of, of Russian descent. And I can remember them. Continue, you know, it's something that I always reflect back on. And they were very kind, but we must have seemed very odd kids because we really didn't know what to do with, with these friendly people. And it's a lesson in, you know, people come into your lives for a reason. And it really showed me the kindness of strangers, I guess is what I'm trying to say, that everybody comes into our lives for a reason, whether it's fleeting or for a longer time. And it's, it's being able to welcome them for however long they're there and to be thankful for what we've gained. Yeah, that is so true. Uh, and I hope I'm able to continue to put that into practice. Um, you know, just, just the notion of welcoming something in and then, you know, allowing it to leave when it needs to leave is liberating um, and maybe even increases our capacity to appreciate and experience the now versus anticipating some future disappointment or joy or whatever we're anticipating. Yeah, yeah, and I think everybody, everybody can teach us whether it's the the guy begging in the street that we talk to, to a, a professional teacher, to the people that you help, you know, who come through your life as you help them um, in the ministry. It's it's really important to show up, be present for them, and be thankful for them because I think. Um, if we're open, we can always learn from people, from any, anyone and everyone. That is beautiful. Mm. Excellent. Thank you so much for your wisdom today. Um, as we end, I want to give you a couple moments to just share more about your work. Are there ways that people can partner with you in, in what you're doing? Are there certain organizations that they could connect with? Um, I believe you have a consulting agency, and so tell us a little bit about that and um, who, you know, if, if people are interested in consulting, why might they want to look into your agency? What do you help people think about and, uh, and work on? So I have a whole gamut of things that I do, sure. but my consulting business is mainly around people. It's around communication. Um, it's around looking at our biases and um, being able to recognize, acknowledge them and work towards um, we can never get rid of them, but work towards understanding them in, in our daily lives. Um, and I work a lot here with um, uh, harassment and bullying. What does it look like? Um, particularly in the workplace, what does it look like? Because people often mix up performance. You know, how am I doing my job with, oh, they keep bullying me. Uh, and, and on the other side, somebody says, well, I'm trying to help them and support them grow yeah, but the way you're doing it is incorrect. So sort of coaching and working with companies in that area. Um, so it's the human you know, communication, that whole human resource area. Um, and then I'm a coach working with um, usually either individuals working through change, through challenges, um, and also through transition. My focus for a lot is... Uh, people moving from a full-time job into maybe retirement or changing 
career. Um, and they can get me at um, moburn at cohesiveconcepts.ca. And then, yeah, and then my, my website is Cohesive Concepts. I love working with people. I love supporting them. You know, I, I love helping them stay in the present and move to the future. Um, you know, as I said, with my Indigenous clients, I, I work often with them, with their counsellors. And if I feel somebody needs that support, that therapy, I suggest it because I think it supports both what I do and what they do um, and, and supports the individual because we all need support. Thank you for listening to episode 12 of the Invisible Truths podcast. If you'd like more information on Maeve's coaching, consulting, or the work she's doing with Indigenous peoples, click on the links in the episode description. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment and leave a rating and a review. Ratings help other people find this podcast, and reviews are important because they allow me the chance to receive feedback so I can understand how to make the podcast better. So take 15 to 20 seconds and leave a five-star rating along with a review. I like to end each episode with something that is tangible and purposeful for you to do to tie in the themes that we spoke about this week. So I'm inviting you to engage with someone from another culture. That may mean eating at an Ethiopian restaurant. It may mean reading a book or listening to a podcast by an international author. Or it could be talking to the neighbors down the street that you never have a conversation with. Whatever makes sense for you to do, take some intentional time this week and engage with another culture. Don't just consume, but exchange ideas, exchange dialogue. Find a way to engage both of your humanities intentionally. The reason this is important is because it pushes on the boxes of normalcy that we so easily erect in our lives, and it allows us to grow and be transformed as we each share in one another's humanity. So find a way to exchange humanity with someone from another culture this week. Once again, thank you for listening to episode 12 of the Invisible Truths podcast. Until next week, I'm Ben Tapper.